This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. So nice to see the sunshine for a change, isn't it? Yeah, it's really nice. What a difference it makes. Oh, big time. Makes a difference in how you conduct yourself, the mood you're in. <laughs> I, I find uh, when the days are a little bit shorter and it's dark in the morning, and I know there's a lot of arguments over, you know, whether or not we should go back to yes. standard time over daylight savings time and all that sort of thing. But when it's dark in the morning, oh, man, do you find it hard to get up? Oh, I really, I do. And I have a lot of time before I have to come into work. So I feel like there's so much more productivity I could get done. But no, I'm I'm like you. Well, I don't know exactly if you're like me, but in terms of this, I, I find it hard to get up. I do. I find it really and difficult go, to get yes. up in the dark. Now, you know, we have uh, a whole segment of our staff that say, Phew, we do it all the time. Exactly. Um, because they're, they're the early mm-hmm. morning uh, crew, the early morning risers. Uh, but, uh, wow, do I find a difference between now and, let's say, July when, you right. know, it was light, the sun was coming in through the window at 530 in the morning or whatever the case may be. So, uh, yeah, I, I really struggle to get myself out of bed this morning. In fact, the alarm was going for a, an extended period of time before I finally, like, oh, hello. Oh, you're one of those. You depend on <laughs> the alarm. Like, do you have to snooze, too? No, I don't okay. do snooze. It's too far away. That'll get me out of bed. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it uh, it was on for a long time. Now, my alarm is not like a... Okay, so you could live with it. It's the radio. So, yeah. you know, I, I find that Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey were, like, weaving their way into my dream thoughts. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, it wasn't for quite some time before I realized, wait a minute, I'm actually listening to the radio. Right. I, I'm should be awake here, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but, yeah, I do find it. And those uh, early evenings, too. Like, you know, you're used to that little bit of time after supper to go outside, do a few things. And now it's like, nope, lights are on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a different way that we're going to have to live over the next several months. I mean, I'm I know we should be used to, to it. Hibernate. Yes, we should uh, be like bears. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Bears got it good. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on, as you know, Claudette, in, uh, the, on the international scene with the uh, current war in Israel. President, U.S. President Joe Biden is in Israel on an urgent mission to keep the Israel-Hamas war from spiraling into a much broader regional conflict. And that is the fear now that other countries are going to be pulled into this. The office of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Wednesday that limited humanitarian aid will be allowed into Gaza following a request from Biden. The president's visit comes after hundreds of Palestinians were reported killed in an explosion at a Gaza hospital the night before. Hamas blamed the blast on an Israeli airstrike, while the Israeli military blamed a rocket misfired by Palestinian militants. Now, a number of news organizations have not independently verified any of the claims or evidence released by either of the two parties when it comes to who is responsible for that terrible strike. But uh, U.S. President Biden in Israel, here are some of the remarks that Biden made to Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu after arriving in Israel. President, for the people of Israel, there's only one thing better than having a true friend like you 
standing with Israel, and that is having you standing in Israel. Your visit here is the first visit of an American president in Israel at a time of war. It is deeply, deeply moving. It speaks to the depth of your personal commitment to Israel. It speaks to the depth of your personal commitment to the future of the Jewish people and the one and only Jewish state. So I know I speak for all the people of Israel when I say thank you, Mr. President. Thank you for standing with Israel today, tomorrow, and always. Well, Mr. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Look, folks, uh, I wanted to be here today uh, for a simple reason. I want the people of Israel, the people of the world, to know where the United States stands. I've had my great Secretary of State here. He's been here for a lot. But I wanted to personally come and make that clear. Terrorist group Hamas has slaughtered, as has been pointed out, over 1,300 people. And is not hyperbole, it's just slaughtered. Slaughtered. And uh, including 31 Americans as part of that. And uh, they've taken scores of people hostage, including children. You said, imagine what those children hiding from Hamas were thinking. It's beyond my comprehension to be able to imagine what they're thinking. They're committed evils that, uh, and atrocities that uh, make ISIS look uh, somewhat more rational. You know, um, Americans are grieving with you. They really are. And Americans are worried. Americans are worried because we know there's a, this is not an easy field to navigate. The fact is that Israel, as they respond to these attacks, it seems to me that uh, have to continue to ensure that you have what you need to defend yourselves. And uh, we're going to make sure that occurs, as you know. And we have to also bear in mind that Hamas does not represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, it has brought them only suffering. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we've got, a lot, we've got to overcome a lot of things. And it also means encouraging life-saving uh, capacity to help the Palestinians who are innocent caught in the middle of this. So those are some of the comments and uh, remarks made by U.S. President Joe Biden in Tel Aviv yesterday to, uh, uh, with his um, visit to uh, Israel with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, as we mentioned off the top, Biden has since confirmed that Israel has agreed to allow some humanitarian aid into Gaza from Egypt, and no word on the timelines on, on that just yet. In the meantime, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has condemned the recent rocket attack against the hospital in Gaza City that claimed the lives of some 500 Palestinians. The uh, news coming out of, uh, of Gaza is uh, horrific and absolutely unacceptable. Um, international humanitarian and, and international law needs to be respected uh, in, in this and in all cases. There are rules around wars and it's not acceptable. 
And of course, uh, hospitals are um, absolutely not supposed to be targeted by um, military activity. Well, both Israel and uh, Palestinian officials have denied responsibility for the hospital attack and uh, news organizations around the world and the U.S. government itself still trying to assess who in fact was responsible for that. Well, when we come back after the break, a little closer to home debate in the House of Assembly today on the rising cost of living and the impact of the carbon tax. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, it's no surprise the rising cost of living is uh, the topic that everybody is talking about at uh, home and at work. Well, it was um, the... um focus of debate again today in the House of Assembly, the rising cost of living and the impact of federal carbon tax, putting added pressures on people already struggling with increased expenses. Uh, Here's a bit of the exchange between opposition leader Tony Wakem, Premier Andrew Fury, and Finance Minister Siobhan Cody this afternoon. The Honorable Leader of the Official Opposition. Speaker, I believe the seniors benefit should be indexed to inflation to ensure our seniors never fall behind on the cost of living. So I ask the Premier, will you index the seniors' benefits to inflation? The Honourable the Minister of Finance, President Treasury Board. Thank you very much, Speaker. Very important uh, point that the member opposite is making about the seniors' benefit. We have a, a seniors' benefit that a lot of, about 50,000 seniors are taking advantage of in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is providing them help and care. We've recently increased that by 15%, Speaker. 15%. And this is just one of the things that we're doing to help our seniors. For example, the home heating supplement is also available that will give $500 for those that are heat their homes with oil to give them a supplement for that. We're also provided free medicals for those that are age 75 or over so that they can they can continue to drive and make sure that they ha- have uh, the, full, the full payment of that service. Speaker, we've been able to introduce those programs. We've been able to support the seniors. Conservatives voted against them. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Speaker, we know exactly what we voted against. We voted against carbon tax. We voted against sugar tax. We have voted against the opposite. And it's, these are wonderful things the minister stands and talks about, but they're measures. They're not a poverty reduction strategy. Well, what we need is a poverty reduction strategy. Speaker, the Liberal government will take in $35 million in carbon tax revenue this year according to their own budget. I asked the Premier, will you rebate back to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador the $35 million you've taken in on carbon tax? Great question. The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, thank you Mr. Speaker. It's, uh, it's always a privilege to talk about the carbon tax, Mr. Federal Speaker. Tax. Once Federal again, we Liberal stand Federal here Federal in the Federal House. Federal yeah, you're right. Liberal Order, Federal please. tax. Federal. Liberal Federal the tax. Order, please. Liberal Federal tax. The Honourable the Premier. 
Mr. Speaker, as you're aware, it is a federal government tax, Mr. Speaker. Despite the fact that everybody has taken a civics class, despite the fact that there's a legislative handbook, Mr. Speaker, the members opposite do not want to acknowledge it, Mr. Speaker. So don't take my word for it, Mr. Speaker. Here is the Supreme Court of Canada ruling, Mr. Speaker. I'm happy to table it if the members opposite would like to read it because they haven't read their civics books, Mr. Speaker. I'm happy to table the whole Supreme Court of Canada. Right now it says, Mr. Speaker, according to Chief Justice Richard Wagner, writing for the majority of the federal government can impose minimum pricing standards on all provinces, Mr. Speaker. Alberta has a carbon tax, Ontario has a carbon tax, all because of the federal government. The Honourable Leader of the Official Opposition. Please. Leader of the official opposition. Simply confirms, Speaker. Simply confirms the carbon tax is a liberal tax. Here, here. Brought in here, by here. a liberal government, supported by a liberal government, increased by a liberal government. Absolutely. Carbon tax is a liberal tax. That's right. As a matter of fact, this, quote, one minister in this liberal government said, quote, the more you drive, the more you're going to have to pay the carbon tax. Oh, I asked the Premier, how do you suggest someone from Trout River get to the health care centre without burning gas? They'll walk. The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Again, I'm happy to stand and debate the, the, the nuances of the carbon tax, the federal carbon tax, Mr. Speaker. I've written the Prime Minister. I've had discussions with the Prime Minister. I take great exception to the Federal Environment Minister's failure to recognize the uniqueness of Newfoundland and Labrador, Mr. Speaker. But if we're giving quotes, Mr. Speaker, I'm happy to deliver one back to, back to the member opposite. From his side, Mr. Speaker, it was the MHA opposite him, Mr. Speaker, who said it was brought in by the federal government, and we acknowledge that, Mr. Speaker. That's coming from the member sitting next to the House, the the House Leader. CBS. So as the members opposite realize, this is not the right instrument. We agree it's not the right instrument. That's why we continue to fight the federal government, Mr. Speaker. The people, the people in this province can't be punished by the carbon tax, Mr. Speaker, and we will continue to fight the federal government on that. So as you hear, uh, the provincial government... Um, uh, taking pains to separate themselves from the federal carbon tax and uh, the uh, opposition uh, progressive conservatives um, uh, trying to pin it to them. Of course, uh, for quite some time now, the provincial government, uh, along with other um, premiers in Atlantic Canada, have been pressing on the federal government uh, the uniqueness of the region and our uh, reliance on... Um, things like ferries and airplanes and trucks to get food and other goods and services into uh, this region, especially Newfoundland and Labrador, which is a little more isolated from the rest. Um, so um, it's obviously going to be a big topic uh, leading into a potential provincial election. We had this um, speculation yesterday. It's it, it's sort of been ramping up for over some time, and yesterday was the first day in which we, um, you know, here at VOCM News, have been um, openly speculating about that possibility. The Premier has not said uh, no, it's not going to happen, but, and he's uh, playing his cards close to his chest, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, election-style ads now that are uh, making their way out there on the numerous platforms. And um, I noticed today as well, Claudette, in the House of Assembly that um, Finance Minister uh, Siobhan Cody made mention, she said, uh, this government 
the Fury government. Now, usually when they put a name in front of government is usually when it becomes politicized. And uh, the only real reason why I would think a governing party would put that in uh, and make that distinction would be if... They're going to be There's calling be an election. An election called soon. And that so. reminds me of the question of the day, too, that you have on. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, would you like to see the provincial government call uh, a fall election? And I love the choices, not just yes or no, but also I'm indifferent. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so far, 53% say no. I don't want to see a fall election. 32% say yes, and 15% say I'm indifferent. Right. Well, I mean, I would assume that um, the people who say yes are looking for a change. Right. And that's fair. But uh, is there a general taste or palate out there for a a provincial election at this time, this fall? All of these things have to be timed out, as you know, um, and they have their own reasons for timing these things when governments decide that now is the time. Uh, Anyway, if anybody has any thoughts on that, they're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, Metrobus is making some changes to the way in which GoBus bookings are carried out. Metrobus is in the process of adopting the iCabby software used by many cab companies in the metro region to book taxis. Metrobus General Manager Judy Powell joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Judy Powell. Good afternoon. So uh, I know that Metrobus has been working on making some changes to better serve customers in and around uh, your service areas, but uh, some changes I understand are coming to the accessible transit services as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so the uh, I guess the Gulliver group of um, taxi companies have moved to an, an online booking system called iCabby, um, you know, very much app-based. Um, so we, as a um, client of the taxi uh, service as well, will be moving to the iCabby booking system. So what will that mean for customers? Um, from... You know, from a service perspective, not a huge change. I guess one of the changes would be uh, typically, um, you know, most of the taxis showing up is under the newfound brand. Uh, this will open up, um, you know, the other brands under the Gulliver group of companies um, to pick up customers. So it actually opens up uh, more of the taxis to us to be able to serve our, our GoBus customers. And will everyone have to have the app, or or will some people still be able to call? No, actually, um, the customers cannot book directly. Um, It has to be booked through the GoBus service. So the GoBus service will book on behalf of the customers because, of course, with the GoBus service, the rides have to be pre-booked. So that will all be handled, uh, you know, and if so, through GoBus. And if someone does not have, um, you know, a, a, a computer to be able to order like they usually do, they can certainly call call uh, GoBus to have one ordered for them. Right. So the overall uh, system is modernizing, uh, but not necessarily changing the way that um, uh, an ordinary customer would book their, their ride. Well, exactly. And it also gives us uh, more information to be able to better service our customers. For example, now when we call a taxi to pick up one of our GoBus customers, um, you know, we would not be aware of the status of that ride, you know, if the taxi is late or if the taxi, something happens that they're unable to show up. We have to depend on the taxi company to call us. But once we start using the iCabby system, uh, our dispatchers at GoBus will be able to track that 
taxi and be able to monitor, uh, you know, the service levels to ensure that they're picked up, ensure that they're coming on time, and be able to keep the customer better informed. Judy Powell, I appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem. And a lot of cab companies are using that iCabby app uh, to, uh, I guess, better serve their customers. Uh, People can just go on the app and say, I need a cab here, and off it goes, instead of having to try to remember a phone number and dial and dial and dial sometimes, you know, to to get through. So uh, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, for sure. But that's not necessarily going to change the way in which people can book their Go Bus. You don't have to have the app in order to book the Go Bus. It's just they're using the app to help to give them more information to streamline. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Very interesting indeed. Um, And uh, just before we go to news, and uh, Noah Shepard no doubt is going to have this in his news today, the lighting of an Inuit oil lamp and dancers formed the Red River Jig, uh, performing the Red River Jig, sorry, brought a different dimension to the swearing-in ceremony from Manitoba Premier Wab Kinu. Guests included uh, Winnipeg Mayor Scott Gillingham, Indigenous actor Adam Beach, and Grand Chief uh, Jerry Daniels of the Southern Chiefs Organization. Kinu's cabinet includes two female Indigenous members, which is a first for the Manitoba government. So uh, very interesting indeed, watching uh, some of that uh, today. Uh, Very um, interesting and colourful. We'll be back right after the news with Noah Shepard. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM. And you may recall that some time ago there was a uh, rather heated um, debate happening in the town of Whitless Bay where uh, there were uh, some people had hoped to develop a piece of land in the Ragged Beach area while uh, others were hoping to have that um, very special area preserved uh, as a natural space. Well, the provincial government watch, uh, a provincial government watchdog, sorry, is applauding government's decision to establish a new land reserve in the area of Ragged Beach, which will help offer more protection protection for bird populations in the nearby Whitless Bay Ecological Reserve. The idea is that uh, the more development along the coast there, the more problems it will cause for uh, creatures like uh, pufflings. And I love that word, Claudette, puffling. I love that word. Uh, that's a little puffin. <laughs> uh, pufflings and um, uh, for um, petrels, storm petrels in the fall of the year because when the pufflings uh, first leave the nest they're attracted by the lights on shore and a lot of people in Bay Bulls and Whitless Bay already know this and many turn out their lights same thing is happening in Beatty Verde of course where the uh, bird sanctuary is very close to their area as well um, the um, Bakaludu um, Island one uh, but uh, so a lot of people turn off their lights and make sure but there's puffin patrols and petrol patrols that take place in the spring and then or the summer I should say and in the fall uh, to help out these birds because once they get end up on land, they're kind of... They're stuck, in a way. They're stuck. They're also targets for cats and dogs right. and cars and, you know, anything else that 
could endanger their their little puffling or petrol lives you know what i mean uh petrol storm petrols you know you see pictures of them you think of them as big birds like gulls or whatever they're teeny tiny little things yeah very vulnerable and they can't take off when they're on land they need to be on a cliff face or on the water in order to take off so uh very vulnerable indeed so this is this was part of the argument about uh, protecting this piece of land in the Whitless Bay, um, uh, sorry, in the Ragged Beach area. Well, for Protected Areas Coordinator with EnviroWatch, Newfoundland and Labrador, Alison Dyer joins me now from Trinity. Hello, Alison Dyer. Hello, how are you? Good, good. So we see now that uh, the provincial government is uh, establishing a new land reserve in the area of Ragged Beach, and we know there was a lot of controversy surrounding that piece of property over the uh, last few years. What's EnviroWatch NL's uh, take on all of this? Right. Well, we're just really pleased and applaud the government on its uh its decision to turn that piece into a land reserve and basically take a precautionary approach there and and put the sort of the natural ecology and also most of the local uh concerns and uh and just do the right thing um you know that piece of land is on a spectacular coastline it's a historic coastline in terms of it having you know those paths that uh, the joined communities that's now the east coast trail um so i would say that that piece of land probably if people are looking specific you know just only at the uh, the economic standpoint it's it's it would draw more in terms of visitors you know tourism but we're interested in, in just in terms of uh, how that came about and sort of a comparison with the kind of um, stand or lack of, mm, uh, of of what's going on on the west coast of the island, for example, there. Totally different project, but, you know, with the um, massive mammoth wind turbine hydrogen uh, project that is uh, being planned that is in stages now for the uh, Port of Port and the Cardroy Valley. And there the government is sort of hand in hand with the, the corporation, um, the public, the local communities have done their own polls, which have not been done by the government or the corporation. They only did it online. And it has shown on the port of port that over 80% does not want this mammoth turbine uh, project to go ahead there. But the government is not listening. They're not holding uh, public consultations. And uh, neither do they seem to be aware of or taking any kind of a precautionary approach when it comes to the, the natural ecology. And so we're, you know, we're sort of like looking at these two, highly different in scale, uh, but but still, you know. And on the other side, in terms from an economic standpoint, um, it was purported at the beginning. John Risley came in and said, "This is all private money, blah blah blah." But when you look at the cost to Newfoundland in terms of the crown lands that we will be giving the fresh water the millions, billions dollars in public subsidies and now uh, hooking up to our grid that may mean that we have to put another diesel. This is, you know, and goodness knows, these projects last maybe 20 years, then we're left with incredible, incredible waste uh, of these non-recyclable parts, as well as all the devastation. I mean, that's something that, that's forever. 
we're just saying, you know, the government should be taking a much more proportionary approach. And our main point there is sort of off topic in, in what you're talking about, is that this is not a green energy project. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They hear wind energy and they think it's green. And definitely wind energy can be green depending on the scale. If it's done on a local scale for direct electrification, this, though, is a mammoth project um, which is turning wind energy into basically a commodity for shipping overseas to be used in the conventional uh, agricultural industry, ammonia. So it's not being used as a green uh, energy fuel per se. They're very, very different things. And so we're not even getting uh, the main purpose of it, which was, as both the Trudeau government and the Fury government were saying, that what we, you know, this is a great thing. We're going to be leaders in, uh, in, in green energy and the green transition. This has nothing to do with that, you know. Uh, and green hydrogen, too, will, on this sort of scale, will require massive amounts of mining for rare earth minerals, which, on a global scale, one for one with fossil fuels, Simply, we will not be able to do. We simply don't have the the minerals, the elements there. We will mine the hell out of the planet. Alison Dyer, I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Anytime. So Alison Dyer there, um, who is the Protected Areas Coordinator with EnviroWatch Newfoundland and Labrador, starting out uh, talking about uh, applauding government's decision to establish a new land reserve in the area of Ragged Beach, but contrasting that with the fact that, you know, she's not seeing similar types of action being taken for, as she sees it, the uh, the proposed development uh, on the Port-a-Port Peninsula, the uh, so-called green energy project, the wind and uh, hydrogen development there. So um, interesting take. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, uh, as we know, we've talked about this uh, throughout uh, the last week or so, Claudette, uh, there have been um, some significant delays in getting back and forth to CBS in recent days because of the massive work they've been doing there with the culverts on the Peacekeeper's Way. But you have an update. I do, yeah. So uh, we just had a call in from uh, a motorist, Gary Best, who traveled Peacekeeper's Way and could travel it without interruption. He said, uh, cruiser, they're taking away all the pylons and uh, taking up everything, so it's open. They've actually finished ahead of schedule. It was supposed to be finished October 19th. Having said that, he said it's still pretty congested as uh, he was, I think, on Route 60 uh, in the vicinity of Sobeys, and it was pretty congested. I'm just uh, looking at some information now. Uh, Foxtrap Access Road is still really congested as it heads towards Route 60, and Route 60 itself is um, congested, too. It's backed up from Church Road on one end and Golden Road on the other. Uh, But I'm just looking at some of the comments too on social media from Conception Bay South Community Voice and it's all positive. Great, great job. Uh, a day ahead of schedule. It's fantastic achievement. So a lot of people, it's usually, you know, when you're in the construction industry, you get crapped on <laughs> by a lot of people um, because people want the improvements, but they don't want to have to wait. They don't like the delayed gratification. They like the instant gratification. So this was supposed to be uh, finishing. They were still supposed to be doing construction tomorrow. 
out too. So That's I, right. so um, people are pleasantly surprised. I think kudos <laughs> to those who were able to finish it and uh, ahead of a, schedule. A massive project, like the the scale of these culverts is just Huge, enormous. I can't remember what the exact mm-hmm. dimensions were, but they're absolutely massive. And of course, you had to remove. Let's be honest. The road. You didn't have to just dig down. You had to remove all of this yeah. material mm-hmm. to get down to where those culverts were and replace it. Um, just amazing amount of work. And I don't know if you saw some of the drone imagery oh, that yes. was. Yes. Yeah. It just fantastic. And all of these, it looked like a, a sandbox with all of the backhoes. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You could just see these giant hens coming down, just playing with the <laughs> <laughs> backhoes. I'm making light, but uh, you know, an extraordinary amount of work went on there. So uh, yay, it's open again. So I'm sure uh, people going back and forth to CBS, CBS. more than happy to hear that. I have so many relatives that are so happy right now because they are stuck. They get stuck in traffic like you wouldn't believe. And it's not just people from Peacekeepers Way. It's it's all the traffic along Route 60, you know, because of the detour. So, yeah, good on you for finishing early. Fantastic news. Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Claudette. So uh, for commuters out there, uh, you'll be able to go home your usual way if that is your usual way well when we come back after the break this is co-op week in newfoundland and labrador and right across canada for that matter and uh, newfoundland and labrador has its own share of uh, very successful co-ops so we'll hear a little bit more about that when we come back after the break this is news talk on vocm your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day have your say we Day morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. We are back. Well, this is Co-op Week in Newfoundland and Labrador and right across Canada for that matter. The week is singled out to reflect on the contributions the cooperative sector has made to the lives of Canadians and celebrate the impact that cooperatives have in uh, communities like here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Quite a number of uh, rural communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. I know there's some on the Great Northern Peninsula, the Fogo Island Co-op, for instance, a very highly uh, successful form of uh, cooperative cooperative um, and uh, as well as uh, the various credit unions across Newfoundland and Labrador all co-ops industry minister Andrew Parsons and vice president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of co-ops Shannon Fraser spoke with reporters this morning here's what they had to say cooperative week happens every year in October generally in the third week We have activities of various kinds where we celebrate co-ops, where we celebrate the social and economic benefits that co-ops provide for communities across the province. You can find out more about those particular activities by visiting the NLFC website, but just to give you an idea, this evening there is a cooperative housing forum in Mount Pearl, uh, which cooperative housing is uh, particular solution for problems we may be having right now uh, and that may we may see be rejuvenated in this province I hope uh, we had uh, the Women's Economic Council led us in some EDI training yesterday uh, also on Friday we will be revisiting the Fogo Island process at the farmers market also a co-op the farmers market um, so we have quite a few activities planned. You can also visit your local co-op or credit union and take advantage of deals and offers. Uh, they may also have events. Uh, and you never know what you may learn during this week. Uh, we invite the public to participate. 
because the public are the people who are the members of co-ops and credit unions. Um, and it's an opportunity to thank uh, people who are our partners uh, in communities and also in government uh, as we celebrate how people can contribute to their own communities through building through cooperatives. I'm very happy to be here today uh, to sign off on the Cooperative Week proclamation. Uh, the reason I think I'm excited to do it is because I've become a full-on believer uh, in the cooperative model, in what cooperatives do for Newfoundland and Labrador. And if anything, it's, they, it's an innovative and purpose-built way to solve some of the issues that we face in our province. And not only is it theoretical, but I've seen it done right there on the ground and I, when we talk about some of the issues we face such as housing such as childcare, when we talk about green initiatives including recycling cooperatives are a way to help address this and they're built by the community led by the community owned by the community and, and again as someone from rural newfoundland i see the the benefit and the the opportunity for rural communities to continue some of the initiatives that they're doing again run by the community and we're seeing it here on the ground in st john's with some of the fantastic initiatives one of them being the farmers market, which my family and I uh, absolutely love. Um, this is a great chance. I think one of the big challenges that we have with cooperatives is that we have to spread the word. We have to make sure to educate people and the province on what cooperatives can do for them. And we've got examples to show, not just to the province, but to the world. When we talk about in Port of Basque, a small community, an area that didn't have childcare options, a cooperative model was formed, partners found, and now the biggest issue we have is was not big enough. We need more. And that just goes to show the success that cooperatives can find. So this is a great week to celebrate what's going on but if anything I think our job is to trump what can happen the opportunities that do exist so I'm extremely pleased to be here I love working with the NLFC they've been very fun partners to work with because we're always trying to find solutions to issues in the province and that's that's half the job that I deal with every single day so thank you very much happy to be here and I can say as someone who's been in government for going on eight, nine years, this is my first proclamation signing in the lobby. Normally I'm in the back rooms and we're bringing it up to the front in the sunlight and I absolutely love it. Cheers. So that's Andrew Parsons, uh, Industry Minister, of course, and uh, Vice President of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Co-ops, Shannon Fraser. And no doubt we're going to hear more about this whole concept that she raised about uh, cooperative housing, because uh, that's uh, something that's been uh, hinted at uh, fairly rel uh, regularly by the NDP in particular, I think, in recent days, to help uh, solve some of this uh, housing crunch that we're facing here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, interesting indeed uh, no doubt we'll hear more about that in the uh, uh, tomorrow and in the days ahead well uh, back to the situation in Israel uh, for a moment more than 1300 Canadians have left Israel on repatriation flights but some of the 35,000 Canadian citizens who have made their home in the Jewish state say they aren't going anywhere Shauna Goodman Sohn who moved to Israel from Montreal nine years ago says she was in Paris when she heard about the Hamas attacks that left more than 1,400 dead. She says that while her family could have returned to Canada where they have relatives, she wanted to return to her home outside
Tel Aviv, despite the fact that since returning, she has had to take shelter at times in a safe room and amid warnings of rocket attacks. Her husband, Todd Sohn, says forging the safe, uh, foregoing, sorry, the safe option and returning to Israel, where he has started volunteering to distribute food for Israelis displaced by the attacks, provides meaning to his life. Miriam Azugo Halbox uh, moved to Israel from Montreal seven years ago. She says the attacks have united Israelis, many of whom have gone to funerals for strangers. Uh, She works at the Israel office of the Canadian Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and says, well, she does love Canada. Israel is where she belongs, especially in difficult times like today. So a lot of difficulty being faced there. And we're watching very closely, of course, uh, the unfolding uh, humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Well, the United States now has vetoed a UN resolution that would have condemned all violence against civilians in the Israel-Hamas war and urged humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. The Wednesday, uh, Wednesday's vote in the 15-member Security Council, there were 12 votes in favor, the United States against, and Russia and the United Kingdom abstaining. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield says after the vote that President Joe Biden is in the region engaging in diplomacy and uh, um, says that uh, we need to let that diplomacy play out. She criticized the resolution for not saying anything about Israel's right to self-defense. Before the vote, council members rejected two Russian amendments, one calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. So the situation in um, Israel not uh, getting any better. As uh, one um, history professor told me last week, it's going to get worse before it gets worse, so to speak. It's a very, very difficult situation. Joe Biden, uh, U.S. president, is in the area now to try and prevent that escalation of violence from um, other countries being drawn into that escalation of violence. Certainly one of the more serious um, uh, issues facing that area of the world in the last, well, number of decades, uh, really. Liberal MPs now calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war today, with some of them becoming emotional in their Please for an end to the violence. Quebec Liberal MP Samir Zuberi held back tears while talking about what he calls the butchery of innocent children as he made his way into the weekly Liberal caucus meeting. Several of the, of the MPs said that they did not have enough information to say who was responsible for the bombing of a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of people. The conflict has left more than 4,000 people dead on both sides since it began with Hamas's surprise attacks on Israeli civilians on October the Seventh, a day that is being described by many in the Jewish community as the worst day since the Holocaust. Um, and uh, the entire world continuing to watch that with great distress and um, and upset. Uh, and just to reiterate, U.S. President Joe Biden has become the target of angry protesters who are in support of Palestinians. It comes as Biden defended Israel during his visit to Tel Aviv today after a blast at a hospital in Gaza caused massive carnage. While Hamas says the explosion was caused by an Israeli strike, Israel has blamed it on a rocket by other Palestinian militants that misfired. Biden sided with Israel today, saying the explosion appeared to be the work of the other team. And we heard his comments a little earlier in the show. Uh, very distressing indeed. Um, and um, what we're 
I mean, it's so difficult to watch what's happening and to get these different perspectives and to try and get a full picture of what's happening because there are so many um, entrenched divisions in this particular story. The, I guess the, the main takeaway is the number of lives lost and the the number that could be lost either through this escalation of violence or through actions that are going to allow people just to literally, quite literally, starve, starve to, to death. death. Um, it, it's so distressing. Very distressing. Um, and especially, you know, the image I can't get out of my head would be the uh, strike on the Gaza hospital and the, I think, 500 you mentioned uh, passed away um, because of that. And now, of course, it's a blame game who, because that's a, it's important to know who, who did it. Um, but aside from that, I've been reading a little bit about what experts are saying to parents, um, how you can mitigate some of this negativity that kids are exposed to. Um, and I found some of those points pretty interesting. Uh, one, of course, would be pretty simple, is to limit your child's exposure to the constant media with the disturbing images, because that can have an effect on the child. And social media has been especially bad with that. Oh, big time, yes. Um, and of course, as you know, nowadays, <laughs> kids, uh, they can be in their bedroom and still in the whole world because they have access to that. Uh, but also to focus on the positive, to highlight the helpers, and to encourage children to be upstanders in their daily lives, to kind of use it as a teachable moment as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, thanks, Claudette. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Uh, until then, uh, keep listening. We'll have uh, details of uh, all the unfolding news that affects you and your life uh, throughout the course of the evening and into tomorrow morning, of course on the VOC, your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Thanks for listening, everyone.